0: Ephesians, Paul wrote, For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, and so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off, And peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to one spirit in the Father. So then you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. This is still our message and will always be our message. This is the message of the gospel. This is the good news of Jesus Christ that God reached out to those who were near, the Jews, and those who were far off everybody else, and brought them in, breaking down all the walls and uniting them not to two peoples or even many peoples, but to one people, the people of Christ. This is the biblically sound, many biblically sound Christian leaders have stepped up this week. I hope that you've been saturating your mind with what they are teaching and not necessarily what the world is shoveling, te- teaching, teaching. They've done it right, and they return to the message of the gospel time and time again, and they refuse to water it down. Um, if you, There's a, a few who I would recommend. Matt Chandler had some great words this week to share. Tony Evans um, has had some great stuff. Vody Bauckham, some of his material from the past is maybe some of the best on the issues of breaking down the dividing walls that anyone has ever done, ever. Um, famous, he is one of the greatest thinkers of our day. Um, we this this idea of the reconciliation, um, the message, any message of reconciliation. It, it's our heritage. It's a big part of what it means to be a Christian. And We have messed it up time and time and time again, and yet we get to see yet again God using us as the ministers of reconciliation over and over again. Um, it's if there is an appropriate kind of pride in this, it it is that that this gospel is the gospel. It still stands. It doesn't fail. We can return people and return ourselves to it time and time again, and it never fails us in this. In fact, um, I'll go ahead and give away a little bit of a secret. If God can unite the Jews and the Gentiles, which as Vody points out is a bigger gap than any other gap humans have ever managed to create between groups of people... Um, especially if it was based on genetics, something as pathetic and irrelevant as slight genetic changes, but instead something massive like those, the nation that, that has been chosen by God versus the rest which have not. To have those united in the reality of the power of that versus anything else we would divide ourselves over is just silliness. But you will now begin to spot already, so, for those of you who are here today, either online or in person, you'll begin to spot that what we're going to be doing by the end of chapter 4, our plaque will be finished, what we believe, what maybe would have hung in the, um, in the temples in Babylon to reference Yahweh, the God of the Jewish people, the, the Most High God. Um, you're going to see that, in fact, Nebuchadnezzar, um, by the end of chapter 4, at least knows the gospel. He at least knows the good news that comes through the person of Yahweh, through the great God Most High. And we already see, already they're beginning to understand, this is a God who reveals mysteries. This is a God who saves his servants. And in chapter 4, we're going to get to see the third piece of the plaque that gets added on that that wraps up what it means, really, for us as Christians. It's a a powerful theological statement that this great and mighty pagan king can, through these three interactions, going toe-to-toe, nose-to-nose with God himself, is going to learn three things about God that if we would get them, would probably save us forever. So, as we jump back into to Daniel chapter 4, we're watching again the most powerful man, maybe who ever lived in his own time, and he's going to learn a little lesson about what, what it means to be a powerful human being, and how being an extremely powerful, maybe the most powerful human being ever, how that relates to the power of God. He's going to learn a lesson about that, and the danger of pride. So again, we started here, chapter four, verse one. Need King Nebuchadnezzar to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are His signs! How mighty His wonders! His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and His dominion endures from generation to generation. Now we talked a little bit about some of that last week, and you have to go back to watch that to get some of those details, but. Apparently, it seemed like a good idea to Nebuchadnezzar to explain what had been going on in his life recently and what God was teaching him, what this God, the God of the Jewish people, this God who goes by the name Most High God, has done. So, we get this little worship chorus, How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders, his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation this is asked, a, a few commentators have, have, have wondered at this, like, this is such an odd thing for Nebuchadnezzar to say about the God of the Hebrew people to the Most High God. And I don't want to diminish this. I think that Nebuchadnezzar is embracing this concept that there's something very, very special about this Most High God. Um, however, again, we don't want to fall into the kind of Christian evangelical church camp mindset that what happened is it's Thursday night and Nebuchadnezzar walked an aisle and asked Jesus into his heart and Got a WWJD bracelet or a T-shirt or something like Don't Don't imagine that. That's, that's a modern uh, a, a creation within Christianity. It's a good one, but it's a modern one. Obviously, he's not going to ask Jesus into his heart. Jesus hadn't come yet, so that's, that's kind of the, off the table 600 years before that. But, but what does this mean? Is it, What kind of conversion is a man like Nebuchadnezzar even capable of having? It's, it's really hard for us to know. Um, historically, it's hard for us to even tell through history, and we'll talk more about that in the next few chapters. But we get this worship course, so some commentators think that probably here's what happened. That Daniel is acting as Nebuchadnezzar's scribe in this situation. And that Nebuchadnezzar is verbalizing his own thoughts and Daniel's putting them down. And it may just be that something happened like this. That at this point, so Nebuchadnezzar gets to this point. He says, you know what, I want to share with everybody the signs and wonders that the Most High God has shown me. Daniel, put something in right here that your God would appreciate. Throw in a couple of verses of a song or something like that that your God would really appreciate, because you know him and I don't. So you put something in here that, that maybe the Most High God would really appreciate, that your people would really appreciate me saying about. It may be that simple. It may be that Daniel is acting through this whole chapter as Nebuchadnezzar's scribe, which would explain some of the things we run into about the language of what's going on here. It's hard to know, but whoever wrote this seemed to have a pretty firm grasp on who the Most High God was, but also seemed to be really confused at times about what the Most High God does. And so it's kind of a, it's weird. And so it makes it sound like, and I kind of buy into that. I think it's likely that maybe what's happening is Daniel is scribing for Nebuchadnezzar. and So we get Daniel's interpretation at times, his explanation at times to what, to what Nebuchadnezzar is saying. Anyway, I think that helps us make sense. Um, there's a, there's a, um, a small section in here, this little bit four one through four, three, that may not be even original, um, or may not belong here. Some of the older texts have it at the end of chapter 3, not the beginning of chapter 4. Um, there's some, some issues with that. I, you, know, you don't have to stress about that. It doesn't really change the meaning of what's going on, but if that's the kind of thing you like to um, uh, research, you can. Sadly, our most ancient copies of the book of Daniel, which, by the way, go back 2,000 years ago, are um, fragments of Daniel in the Dead Sea Scrolls, don't include... <laughs> this section. Now that doesn't mean it's not there. It just means literally like they're fragments. Like there's a verse here and a verse there and a little bit here and a little bit there. And so um, we're missing this little section. The most ancient copies that if we could find some more. If anybody wants to go over and throw rocks in the caves in Qumran until you hear pottery break and then go in and find more Daniel copies, that'd be awesome. Um, but uh, that's what it's going to take. Something like that. Um, so here where we are. Regardless, we start here with Nebuchadnezzar sitting in his rocking chair. Uh, with warm tea and a blanket over his lap, telling the story. It doesn't say that in the passage. This is what I picture. Telling the story about recovering from the events that he's recently apparently experienced, which have been, needless to say, a little troubling. Here's the account starting in verse 4. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. Okay? So that's a pretty, pretty tame start to the story. I was hanging out at home Things were great. He was doing well. I'm recently home from having subjugated Syria, Judea, Egypt, all of Arabia. He'd been a busy man. Now he's home. It's time to prop up his feet. There really are no enemies left on the planet who can threaten Babylon. He has subjugated every single one of them. No one has really a shot. It will be decades before anybody else could recover from the beating that he's given them to even begin to, to test him Now he's got plenty of years to live out luxury and peace. So here he is hanging out at home, and I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in bed, the fancies and visions of my head alarmed me. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me and that they might make known to me the interpretation of my dream. Then the magicians and the enchanters, the Chaldeans, the astrologers came in, and I told them the dream but they could not make known to me its interpretation. Now, stuff like this that caused me as a kid to be confused about how many different stories there were in the Bible, because this sounds just a little familiar, doesn't it? Wait, how many times did Nebuchadnezzar have a dream, and he had a dream, and then he had some people come and interpret him, and was that Pharaoh or was that Nebuchadnezzar? Because they kind of do the same thing sometimes. And I, As a kid, this, these stories always confused me. How many of these were there? So here you have the very similar stories before. Now, it, I don't know that this makes any difference, and may, but maybe someone in here needs to hear this. Like, I did discover that up to 2% of the population doesn't have visions inside of their head. I don't know that that, I mean, I just thought that was wild. It's like, like two out of every hundred people can't picture things. If you say, picture the house you grew up in, they don't, they don't actually see a picture. Weirdos. So I don't know if that's, a, if that's, if that's you, like, I don't know how to help you, because I don't know... I had a professor who that was the truth about him, and we argued with him the whole semester. Try this. Can you picture this? Picture red. He's like, I-, I can't. I can't do-. Anyway, so Nebuchadnezzar could. So here Nebuchadnezzar's having a vision in his mind, and so it's playing out so similar to last time. He has this dream, and the dream troubles him. He's disturbed by this dream. So what does he do? He calls in all of his wise men. Now, you might ask the same thing I would ask immediately, is why would he waste his time calling in anyone but Daniel. I have a guess in this chapter. I have an opinion in this chapter as to why he doesn't call in Daniel. Um, Because when you hear the dream in a minute, I'm going to theorize to you. Here's my theory. Here's Here's my thesis statement. is that it's not hard to tell what this dream is about. It's actually not difficult at all to know this. At least the basic message of this dream doesn't require Sigmund Freud to interpret it for you. It's pretty on the surface. It's not hard to miss. And I think Nebuchadnezzar is afraid it he says he's afraid. There's something scary in this dream. All that scary. I mean, it's about a tree that falls over. Like, how scary is that, really? And yet, there's, a, there's an announcement made in the dream, and I think Nebuchadnezzar has an idea of what this is all about. And so the last thing he wants is to have Daniel come in and tell him what it means. He would love to have one of these paid sycophant yes-men to come in and tell him what he wants to hear. But even they, I think, know better. So anyway, at last... Verse 8, Daniel came in before me who was named Belteshazzar after the name of my God and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I told him the dream saying, O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you and that no mystery is too difficult for you. Now tell me the visions of my dream and that I, that I saw and their interpretations. Again, notice Neb stalled to bring in Daniel. Daniel. Well, Neb is still impressed. Nebuchadnezzar is still impressed with the idea that Daniel is, is special because of the power of the gods. Now, this is, this is kind of the stereotypical narcissistic leader, isn't it? How many times has Daniel made clear to Nebuchadnezzar that this is not about the power of gods? This is not about Daniel, and it's not about the power of gods. Daniel has made this abundantly clear every time he's had an interaction with Nebuchadnezzar, and Nebuchadnezzar insists on interpreting through his own eyes Versus the eyes that Daniel keeps telling him, this isn't about gods, it's about the God, the Most High God. There is one God who reveals these mysteries, and there's not a bunch of gods. There's nothing special about Daniel, except that Daniel is able to hear the voice of Almighty God when God teaches him something. We never see Daniel encourage this concept. But it does help us understand that Nebuchadnezzar hasn't now become converted to some kind of monotheism. That he has elevated the Most High God is amazing, but of course Nebuchadnezzar hasn't somehow become now a Jew. He hasn't converted to Judaism. Even with all the respect that Nebuchadnezzar has for the Most High God, he still sees God as one of the many gods and maybe one of the many gods that empower Daniel. So he lays this dream out to this guy who he thinks of as special using his own language about how special Daniel is because of the Most High Gods. And notice, this time there's no secret science experiment. He doesn't require that they tell him the dream. He tells them the dream. Straight up front, here's the dream. Here's what's happened in the dream. Here's what's going on in the dream. Now tell me what it means. And it tells us that his magicians and Chaldeans were, quote, unable to do so. I also kind of would call that out. Again, I'm no dream interpreter, but when I hear the beginning of this dream, I don't wonder at its meaning. It seems pretty obvious what the dream means. I think the Chaldeans and the magicians are too afraid to tell him what it means. They don't want to be the bearers of bad news to him. The vision of my head as I lay in bed were these. Behold, a tree in the midst of the earth and its height was great The tree grew and became strong, and its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful, its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. So let's talk a minute about trees. John Keeling a few weeks ago referenced the trees being one of these great archetypes all through Scripture. Certainly it is, this vision that we see over and over again. If you want to study that in depth, there is an entire Bible Project podcast series about trees in the Bible, several hours that you could study and and dig into this concept. But I grew up out in trees. I grew up in Nacogdoches, actually outside of Nacogdoches, actually outside of Appleby, um, in, in just nothing but trees for miles in every direction. And most of my days were spent outdoors, miles from home, out in trees in the middle of the forest, Um, it was, it was, I mean, there was a little bit of the Tom Sawyer, Huck Finn thing in my neighborhood. I mean, we would, the rule during the summer for me was to check in at dinner typically. And so, so a lot of times that meant I spent the night out and my best friend and I would wander around in the woods and we would have projects going and building forts and damming up creeks and, and all kinds of stuff over and over again. And, and, uh, when we got tired and when it got dark, and we finally got too tired to do stuff, we would just lay down and sleep until morning because, you know, you can do that when you're a kid. Um, and you don't wake up like you've been locked up in a straitjacket like I feel nowadays. But the, the uh, and so we just, then we would just get up when the sun got up and we would go to someone's house, sometimes one of ours, sometimes not, and get some kind of breakfast or have something with us. And, but the idea was check in at dinner. And I, so I grew up around trees. Trees were a best friend. They were a, a vision to me of kind of all things. The, the, the green and the beauty of that was a big deal to me. Um, uh, Rebecca was telling us a story about uh, her relationship with a friend named Mary and that they would have tree time. They would go sit under the leaves of a tree. She was, faced different, different challenges and they would go sit under the leaves of a tree and this would calm her friend down. Um, we loved to climb them and rest in them. One of my favorite things was to find a just right nook in a tree and then bring a book with me and sit up there 30 or 40 feet off the ground just right in the nook of the tree and read. Loved that as a kid. Um, now, Imagine that you're in the Middle East. So instead of picturing lush green trees in every direction for miles and miles and miles like I grew up in, imagine if a tree that was recognizable as a tree and not a shrub was so special, it became a landmark. That literally you could tell people to meet me at the oak, and everyone would know what you meant because there was only one big enough to be a landmark. This is the biblical picture. Look in Genesis 12.6, Abraham passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Mora. And at that time, the Canaanites were in the land. So if you'd been around the time, if you were even nearly a contemporary of Abraham and you're reading this, you would go like, oh yeah, I know which oak he's talking about. That one oak in that one region that's worth mentioning. It's, it's an amazing concept. When you go today, especially when we go in June, by last last time this year we were there, you go in June, and it's hot, especially if you're in the, the, the more desert regions. And when you find a tree, what you do is you stop. All of the little benches are built around the base of these. Every once in a while, there's a tree big enough that actually creates shade, and you, they, build, they build benches there, and everybody sits there. That's where you found all kinds of people in the Hebrew Scriptures. You find all kinds of people sitting at the foot of a tree because um, that's the only place you could find that type of comfort and rest. Uh, most trees grow slowly there. Planting one is a gift to the next generation. You will never sh- get shade of a tree you plant. But the next generation might, or the next generation might. It's a, it's a lovely picture. Trees are seen as gifts. When you give a tree to somebody or you plant a tree, you're giving a gift to generations of people to follow, not, um, not yourself. It's a, it's a cool picture and a neat, a neat one that has um, a lot of application. Jesus even compares the kingdom of heaven to a tree very similar to the one used here in this dream in Luke 13. He said, therefore, what is the kingdom of heaven like, and what shall I compare it? It's like a grain of a mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden. And it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. When Westerners picture this, we picture, here's a, I think I have a painting. We picture something like this. Nebuchadnezzar sleeping, and there's a giant oak tree behind him. That's probably not what the dream is actually there, though. I looked up all the paintings that I could, and they all showed either giant pine trees or giant oak trees like that. Maybe. But here's what's funny. Neither oak trees nor pine trees produce fruit. And this chapter specifically references the fact that the birds fly into there, into and its fruit is abundant for people. So some of you may have seen, this is a good one, because some of you may have had, anybody, do any of you have, or does your family have, or did your parents have a giant fig tree, like a fig tree that had been growing for 10 years, 20 years, 30 years. Anybody have one of those in your... I remember someone a few years ago, I um, brought some figs to, I think, Teen Reach Adventure Camp to teach them. I was talking through King David, and I'd pulled some fig trees, some figs, and so, because my fig trees are pretty new, and they're young, and I brought a bucket, and I don't remember who it was, because I was pretty new to the church, and someone the next day said, I'll bring some figs for everybody tomorrow, and they brought a bushel full, I mean, Five gallons, probably of three gallons, something like that. of Of just figs, they were like, yeah, I've got a big old fig tree that cranks out figs like this. Lance was broken hearted when the fig trees over near Andes, um, they were a bunch of fig trees there that threw out figs. He would go by and I guess take is the right word. Steal seems <laughs> use took the figs that no one else was getting off the fig trees and and that kind of stuff. But uh, and then they tore them up and put in some other type of little bush. Which you're like, yeah, don't do that. But the That's probably, when you talk in the Middle East about a tree that grows big and provides shade and fruit, picture figs. In fact, I hate to break it to you, but probably the fruit that Eve ate and gave to Adam would have been a fig, not an apple. Apples don't grow in that part of the world at all, so I know. Just, okay, take a breath. You're okay. It's okay that it's not an apple. All right, so nothing in the Bible says apple. Instead, we picture, picture, so imagine a giant tree that people could come and eat from and, and that the birds land in and... It's it's a giant spread shade tree that's just of great beauty, and that's that's what's supposed to be pictured here. The idea that Nebuchadnezzar would have been like a giant tree, this part of the dream is a huge compliment. It may be among the greatest compliments you could place, place. You could pay someone in the Middle East like this. You know what you're like? You're like a giant tree that you produce shade. You stand through storms. You withstand the difficulties. You're a place for people to come and find peace and refuge and often wisdom. It's a great compliment. Listen to Psalm chapter 1. Some of you have this memorized. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season and his leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers, but the wicked are not so. They are like the chaff that the wind drives away. Things that don't last are often related to grass in the Bible. Things that last are related to trees. This is a beautiful picture. I, I would pray and do pray that South Spring would be like a tree. That's why, part of why we picked the name spring, that, 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 that spring is there. And, and that that spring pours out, that it becomes like an eye of refreshment for us, that we would be, a, in fact, a place of refreshment for people. The two symbols that I use um, for the counseling center, Aletheia, are the compass rose and a tree. The two symbols that we have for our family are a path and a tree. This, this fits in really well with who we want to be. And as Christians, what we would want to be said of us Not only this church, but the church, the kingdom, as Jesus said, would be like that. This is part of why, ladies and gentlemen, why it is vital that our message is always the same message. It's always the gospel. It can be applied in a thousand, a million, a billion different ways, but that the message is still the gospel and that our movement is always the kingdom. We have a movement. It's called the kingdom of heaven that we're part of. And only the aspects of other movements that can be conformed and submitted to that movement do we buy into and do we support. The others, we let go. They must fall within that. This is who we are. Otherwise, we bring infection into the tree, and that's lethal, and we're seeing it done in churches around the country. We've been seeing it for years now. Ever since, like, especially in the 60s when people began, when churches began to say, oh, God's Word is not authoritative. It's got some great wisdom. We use it as a book of, of, to guide us as wisdom, but it's not authoritative. We have to decide which of it to, you know, what, what of it that we would go like, listen, I know that the Bible teaches us, but, you know, it's kind of a guide. And we can't fall into that line. Yes, we have to interpret it, and yes, we have to dig in, and yes, we have to figure out what the applications are supposed to be, but we're always submitted to it. We always have to come back to that. How, how powerful a picture is this? Go back to verse 4. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. How powerful a concept is this? The Aramaic word here for prosper is the word green. That's what it means to prosper in the Middle East is to be green and growing like a tree. That's not an accident that that's there. I was in my house and I was green. And I dreamed that I was a tree. That's pretty clear. So here you go. So, this giant, luxuriant tree. At this point in the dream, you could not, let Nebuchadnezzar would have been loving it, eating it up. This may be me. And I saw the visions in my head, I saw as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one came down from heaven. Holy ones here, Kadesh. Holy, sacred, consecrated sacrifice. That's, these are different words used for, tra, translated here. Deuteronomy 33.2 says, The Lord came from Sinai and dawned from Seir upon us, and He shone forth from Mount Paran, and he came, from the ten, he came from the ten thousands of holy ones with flaming fire at His right hand. Same concept. Holy ones. It's in the New Testament, too, in Jude 1, but there's only one chapter. Jude 14 it was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of His holy ones. Clearly, this concept of holy ones, watchers. Some of your older translations will imply that it's two, watcher and holy one. And that may be right, by the way. There's a passage later that may indicate that, may defend that. But, or it may just be one, this one who is a watcher, comma, a holy one. The image that we have of... of the, these are the hosts of heaven. These are God, like like a son of the gods. If you can imagine, like Nebuchadnezzar said about the, the burning uh, the fiery furnace, a being of awe. Again, so far so good. We have this giant tree, and we have this angel who's come to deliver this message. And why is he so tro- troubled? Well, the Book of Enoch presents, uh, which a Book of Enoch was a, a popular kind of apocryphal reading in the first century um, Jewish. It was written a couple hundred years before Christ. We have copies of it today. Um, several sections were even found with the Dead Sea Scrolls because they read them and, and looked at them. They were never treated as Scripture. They were never treated as what we call canonical. They were never treated as equal, um, but as intriguing or even able to offer insight into the era. You can buy it cheaply um, on Amazon um, if, you're, if that kind of thing interests you. <clears throat> they, weren't, they weren't attached with it, but there's a whole section about watchers in the book of Enoch, Jude referenced that a second ago, about watchers, good watchers and evil watchers, these, again, these angelic beings. But, the, but here's the thing if you've still got in your head the idea of angels being these cute little bare bottomed um, cherubs with little wings and, you know, that they, they sell diapers or they sell baby powder or stuff like that, that that's the picture you have of them or, or whatever, um, that's not, that's not going to be correct. I have a couple of pictures, a couple of paintings that are my favorite representations of them. And this one is actually called A Watcher in the Night. Um, the idea that that the angels would be um, these kind of funny little creatures that whatever, instead to picture an intimidating, um, te- almost terrifying, awe-inspiring picture. Here's my other one. This one is called the Guardian. Again, that you would picture this this guy when he shows up. You don't think he's here to to just hang out, right? Something important is about to happen. There's a judgment about to be rendered a powerful being of incredible intensity has just shown up in his dream. And this powerful being proclaims aloud, like a herald, by the way, like with a megaphone, but he didn't need a megaphone, and said thus, Chop down the tree, lop off its branches, strip off its leaves, scatter its fruit, let the beast flee from under it, and the birds from its branches. Now you know why Nebuchadnezzar wasn't happy about this dream. Now you know why he was terrified by this dream. This beautiful tree with this grand announcement and the announcement is the doom of the tree itself. He proclaims judgment on this giant tree. The tree faces destruction and disgrace. Um, As a lover of the Lorax, I automatically went to the I was like, the humming fish, the swami swans, and the brown barbaloots are all having to bail on the tree, right? They're, they're out of here. This, they've been chased away. The animals are chased away from the tree. The tree is struck and down. It is stripped. It's not just knocked down. It is stripped of leaves. It is, its fruit is cast away. Its limbs are lopped off. It is a, it's an utter destruction and an intentional one. It's not cut it down and let it rot. It, is, it comes under the assault, this direct energy of this uh, judgment. Verse 15 says, But leave the stump of the roots in the earth bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's, and let a beast's mind be given to him, and let seven periods of time pass over him. In the midst of the crazy imagery of apocalyptic literature, and we'll talk more about that in coming weeks, This is literature that reveals a message from God through visions and dreams. That's what apocalyptic, revealed. That's all apocalyptic means is to be revealed. Um, Nebuchadnezzar must have wondered what this could reference. I think any of us can imagine what the metaphor of the great tree being chopped down was, and I'm sure Nebuchadnezzar could too. The tree being destructed and humiliated. But what's this strange metaphor of the tree becoming like a beast? So next week, Daniel will explain all of it next week when we go through this chapter. You're allowed to read ahead. That's not considered cheating, but some think that the binding of the trunk is strange. It's the way a prisoner would be bound. The language here, the Aramaic here indicates, in fact, the word here can mean to imprison. So it may be that the trunk is being restricted, limited, bound up and imprisoned. Others think the purpose of the iron and bronze wrap is to protect the stump so that the stump doesn't rot or split or come apart so that it's still there, so that shoots can continue to grow from it. That you would cut off the, the tree, but then protect the stump so that it would stay safe enough, so that new shoots could grow from it. It's hard to know exactly. But it is interesting that in verse, we're talking about a tree, and then in verse 15, suddenly it is, let him be wet with the dew of heaven. So it's not just a tree trunk, huh? Probably pick up on that, that the angel's announcement says him, not it. This is clever. It, him now, is going to be wet with dew and eating grass and having a beast's mind for seven periods of time. We'll talk more about it next week, but the seven periods of time, um, the word here, moments, times, situations, it doesn't, not the word month, it's not the word year, it's not the word day, it's not the word week, and all those exist. Those could have been used. Instead, it just says times, periods. Um, And so, I think more likely, since it's attached to the word seven that what's being meant here is until the time is complete. In fact, it's a little bit like Nebuchadnezzar. We're going to see Nebuchadnezzar is going to be the one who decides how long it lasts. Nebuchadnezzar is going to be the one who decides. When, it, when the time is complete, when it's finished, then this time will end. Seven is the number of completion in the Hebrew mindset. Verse 17, The sentence is by decree of the watchers, the decisions by the most, the word of the holy ones, to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom He will and sets it over the lowliest of men. Again, notice we get even why. Why is this going to happen? Why is the tree going to be torn down? Why is this grand tree that is such a blessing to the whole world going to be stricken and struck down and disgraced and humiliated and start over? Why? Why would that happen? And this is it's a lesson for the whole world. The watchers... And the holy ones gathered together this divine council, these angelic um, um, beings, the powers and principalities, they got together and they have made a decision. They think this is a lesson that man needs. A lesson that mankind needs. And the lesson is God is the one in control, not you. God is the one with all the power, not you. You think it's about you, but it isn't. And you need to be reminded of this. Babylon has become so great. Babylon has become so mighty. Isn't it interesting that the picture is a picture of a tree? It's not a temple. It's not something men or humans make. It is an image of a tree. And you can imagine if someone came to you and sat down with you and and said, like let's say you had an encouragement event or a birthday or something, and someone sat down with you and said, you know what you're like? You're like a giant tree. Like a huge tree with big leaves. And people find shade with you, and they find comfort with you, and they... And they they eat of the wisdom that you've given and you provide for this whole community in amazing ways. And you'd just be sitting and glowing in that, wouldn't you? I mean, wouldn't that be so cool? And then they go, remember, you have nothing to do with it. You don't make trees happen. Get that out of your head. You can water, you can fertilize, you can feed, you can provide light. You, or you can't really, I mean you sort of provide light, but you're like, but in the end, a tree's gonna grow or not based on what God, whether God wants a tree to grow or not. Everything you do. Everybody had that experience? I'm, I'm a tree planter. I love planting trees. I'm, at about a, I'm, I'm so good at it, I'm at about a 60 to 70% success rate. For every tree I plant, for every three trees I plant, I kill one. I plant it, the next year it dies. I have no idea why. I'll plant two right side by side. I will treat them exactly the same, and one will die, and the other will flourish, and I don't know why. And sometimes they'll flourish and flourish and flourish, and then they just suddenly won't, and they decide that they're dead now, I guess. I don't know how trees do that. Do y'all know, by the way, I won't take time with this, but do y'all know that Tyler wasn't always the rose capital? Have you ever done any research on this? Tyler wasn't the rose capital until the 19-teens began to become the rose capital. You might know what it was before that? Peaches. Tyler was the peach capital. It had peaches everywhere. We still, You still, if you're wandering out in the woods in Tyler, you will find great, huge, old peach trees. And and And... It's, they were planted at one point, and then one day tended. There's two or three on this property that are just kind of randomly out there. Every once in a while, somebody like Lance finds them, too. So, so you have these, these peaches. What happened? You might know. I mean, it was, it, was, it was everyone's economy. The economy was based on peaches. And what happened? There was a blight. In the early 1900s, there was a blight. And one thing I read said that in two years, 96% of the peach trees died in Tyler. I, I mean, that's 100-year-old news. But it was amazing. And the, and the peach farmers were like, done. No more of those peaches. We're going to find something more hardy that we can sell, that are easier to take care of. And so they started over with roses. And by the way, about that time, Kilgore uh, oil was struck in Kilgore. Oil was found in Kilgore, and then this became the breakfast community for all the wealthy oil barons. Um, that's, it, Tyler has an interesting story behind it. But that's, we once were in peaches, and guess what? We couldn't make them work At some point, they suddenly decided they were all going to die. This is the great picture of why a great picture of a tree is so awesome is it teaches us even in its greatness, we have to be humble about a tree because we didn't create the tree and we can't make the tree grow and we can't make it flourish. We do what we know to do and we count on God to make it flourish. And that's such a great picture of that. Here you have Nebuchadnezzar finding out not only is that he apparently needs this lesson, but not just him. Notice, it doesn't say... Um, the dissentence is so that Nebuchadnezzar can know. It is so that the living may know. All of us, invisible, visible and invisible creation, need to be reminded of this truth time to time. It's not about us. It's amazing. We talked last week how when we face crisis, our instantaneous instinct is to go, well, well but what about me? What about my perspective? What about my preferences? What about what I like? What about what I'm comfortable with? What about me defending myself against you? But that's not the Christian way. As Christians, we get to say, yeah, I've got a lot of work. Yeah, I need to grow. Yeah, I need to listen. The truth is, all the success we have, in the end, fundamentally, is his story, not ours. Nebuchadnezzar apparently needs this reminder, but so do the rest of us, which is why we're studying it. Perfect timing. So Nebuchadnezzar ends with this instruction the warrior angel explains the judgment is that this judgment is going to be about the pride of the living. Verse eighteen: This dream I Nebuchadnezzar, I King Nebuchadnezzar saw, and you O Belteshazzar, tell me the interpretation, because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation, but you are, for the spirit of holy gods is in you. Are they unable? I doubt it. Are they afraid? Probably. So, Daniel has this advantage: one, he can know the truth. 2 he has the courage to speak the truth 3 he has even mastered that rare mature ability to speak the truth in love which is what we're exactly what we're called to do not because of the spirit of the holy god's but because of the work of the most high holy god in his life This is a great example. The reason we're not finishing the dream, I did try to rush through the whole dream and the whole story today, which would have made sense, is because I think there's enough lesson here for us to try to wrap our brains in. Can we hear something, see the truth, engage with the truth in a healthy, mature way, be courageous enough to speak the truth, but also have the maturity to speak the truth in love? Can we truly be gentle as sheep while we're being wise as serpents, most of us aren't very good at those. So I want to pray for us as, repre- as God's representatives, as his ambassadors, that not only that we would know the truth, but that we would speak it and we would speak it in love. As we're going to see Daniel yet again do here. Father, you're so gracious to give us this account of Daniel. You're so gracious to have reached down into the life of a man like Nebuchadnezzar. And as hard as his life becomes for some period of time, as hard as his life becomes, he doesn't seem to regret it here. He seems to really even love the message that you've taught him. And Lord, I pray that you would teach us to seek you without having to be this broken. That you would teach us, all of us of the living, to remember that there is a Most High God And that, in fact, our lives and our destinies are in His hand, are in Your hand. So, Lord, I pray today that You would help us to be lights in a dark world, cities on a hill, that we would be salt, savory and refreshing and encouraging. Lord, I pray we would be like a giant tree spread out, grown by You, provided for by You as a provision to the world to offer shade and comfort. God, I pray we would be like springs of living water that well up within us because of the work of Your Son and that overflow out of our lives into the lives of our spouses and our kids, into the lives of our friends and our neighbors, into the lives of the people we interact with as we seek to love those who are hurting, as we comfort and appreciate those who serve and who protect us, and we empathize with those who face challenges and difficulties of all types. God, that we would fight for injustice as the type of spring that brings life through your Son. God, we love your justice, and we love your grace, and we love your mercy. Teach us, Lord, to walk in those, and as we do, to always walk humbly as well with you. And it's with you that we pray these things. Amen.